Welcome to season two of Media Minded, the show guiding you through the age of disinformation. We'll be speaking to ex-conspiracy theorists, exploring their journeys in and out of the rabbit hole of misinformation, as well as experts. Yes, those people we've decided to completely disregard this decade. Well, we're bringing them back because, and this might just be me, years of study trumps a three minute YouTube video. Join us as we explore unconscious bias and address those who would sacrifice truth, integrity, and objectivity on the altar of disinformation, propaganda, and conspiracy. This podcast is produced by Shoutout UK, the leading political and media literacy education platform, and is made possible by the generous support and sponsorship of the US Embassy here in London. I am your host, Matteo Bergamini, founder and CEO of Shoutout UK, here to challenge your understanding over the world around you, and hopefully not challenge your attention span. We all remember 2020, right? Sometimes it feels like yesterday. Other days, it feels like years ago. 2020 was the year that COVID was declared a global pandemic. The last year of Trump's presidency and the year of racial reckoning in the United States and in countries across the globe. The killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor and Ahmed Arbery, among others, forced us to confront the pervasive and painful realities of racism and inequality, too often in the realm of policing. The United Kingdom is by no means withdrawn from these realities. After all, it was also in 2020 that a 15-year-old girl, referred to as Child Q, was strip-searched by four Met Police officers after being wrongfully suspected of carrying cannabis. Recent data shows that over 9,000 children were strip-searched by Met Police officers in the past five years. And in Hackney, where Child Q is from, 60% of children strip-searched were black. In today's episode, we speak to Andy George, president of the National Black Police Association, on his experience as a minority ethnic police officer, on racism within the police force, his fears around increased stop and search powers, unconscious bias, and its implications on building back police community relations. So I'm joined now by Andy George, who is the president of the National Black Police Association. Hello, Andy. Hi, Matteo. How are you doing? Yeah, not too bad, not too bad. As we were saying earlier, enjoying the uh, enjoying the crazy summer that we're uh, currently having. Um, first of all, can you give us a bit of background about your career journey and why you decided to go into policing? Yeah, I, I grew up in Northern Ireland. I kind of I always chatted. I'm kind of that kind of unique person, really. I was one of five to ten officers from an ethnic minority that joined the RUC back in 1999. Um, and that was in about 13,500 police. Um, but I was also one of the 92% majority. So I grew up um, being from a Protestant background in Northern Ireland. I grew up with friends, relatives that were all in the security services or in the police. 
So grew up in those stories and decided to join in 1999. Only just turned 20, so literally left school. Um, joined the police and um, didn't really look back. The first eight years was in response to dealing with emergency and priority calls in OMA, which had um, that devastating bomb attack in 1998. So I went shortly after that, about a year and a half after that. So dealing with a community that was still in obviously quite a bit of trauma and um, getting over that, um, that kind of atrocity. Um, then I moved in for 10 years after that, moved into the armed response unit. So dealing with all gun and knife crime in Northern Ireland. So about 10 of us just driving about at 120, 130 mile an hour with all of your shields and tasers and, and firearms and stuff dealing with those incidents. Then I ended up getting promoted and um, moving through the fast track program. And that led me in then um, just before I had to leaving, um, leaving that and moving into the National Black Police Association where I took over as president in July 2020 and I've been doing that ever since. Amazing. And and just going back to kind of like you at 20, um, obviously Northern Ireland has got, um, if, if I dare say it, in, in terms of the UK, quite a unique history in terms of the troubles and, and obviously um, religious, religious uh, violence. Like, didn't that scare you into going into policing at all? Or did it kind of do the complete opposite, considering you kind of grew up hearing no, those stories? No, a little bit, you know, hearing those stories, you know, as I said, one of my friend's dads got shot dead through the kitchen window whenever I was 11. So we were in um, the last year of primary school. He was just making a cup of tea, shot just because he was a police officer. Another, one of my friend's uncles got blew up on the side of a road as well, just going in for fuel at, at one of the stations, leaving posting. So kind of knew what we were getting into. Dad was in the security service as well. That's what brought him over to Northern Ireland. He was a soldier. Mm -hmm dealing with um, the bomb disposal, dealing with many of the, the explosive devices that were in Northern Ireland during the 70s. Um, so I knew what I was getting into. Um, the fear was there, um, but I think it was something that, that almost had been normalised in Northern Ireland. So knew what I was getting into, but at 20 years old, all I ever wanted to be was a police officer. Grew up in those stories and, and thankfully got accepted at an early stage. So really, if I'm honest, I don't know much outside of policing uh, other than that career. The National Black Police Association is a network that brings together 40 to 50 local associations. That includes every police force in England, Wales, Scotland, the Police Service of Northern Ireland, as well as national groups including the National Crime Agency, the British Transport Police, and the Ministry of Defence. Collectively, the NBPA supports black and minority ethnic staff and officers in UK policing. Our motto is one voice, strength and unity. So we do try to make sure that we are working together to try and amplify that voice. But ultimately, our, our main goal is really to, to increase racial equality between policing and the communities that we serve. And I think there's, there's three real ways that we do that. One's to support our members. So, I mean, like a lot of them are still suffering deep trauma. You're more likely to face misconduct being a black or Asian officer in the UK and UK policing. You um, are more likely or less likely, sorry, to end up getting promoted as well. So in all of the time in policing, we've only ever had one black chief constable, um, despite the first police officer being John Kent, who patrolled the streets of Carlisle in 1837. Um, other things that we do as well is give strategic advice and guidance to senior leaders because there's a lack of representation 
they're often um, more likely to end up with echo chambers and single viewpoints, which could be that white majority. So we try to give that more diverse perspective as well. So give advice to senior leaders in policing, but then also stakeholders like the Home Office, um, HMIC, IOPC and others. And then the last thing we do, and I think one of the most important is, as well as the support for our members is they amplify the voice of the communities. So we were set up in the aftermath of um, Stephen Lawrence's murder and the McPherson um, report that followed that India's his murder and the subsequent investigation. So I think that that kind of working with community groups, they amplify their voice to make sure that we are highlighting issues that need change. And that's really the, the key thing that we're trying to do is highlight these issues, not to have a go at the police, but to try to make sure that things get better for all. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that's a um, that's an important um bit of work you're doing in the sense that you know and and, and especially in the last couple of years I mean this isn't a new conversation by any means but especially in the last couple of years we've really seen it ramp up we've really seen a lot of um criticism being thrown at the police um here as well as across the pond in the states um for a variety of um many would argue very legitimate reasons um but without that kind of internal push to 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 create more equity in terms of who who has power more equality in terms of who gets who gets appointed in certain positions um you're not really gonna gonna see that shift are you if you're just screaming from the outside in no completely and that, that that's my ethos in, in general is you know it's kind of what i've seen in northern ireland and i live through positive discrimination so there were positive discrimination in northern ireland was introduced from 2001 to 2011 that increased the representation of catholic officers from around nine percent to 32% in those 10 years. So having that large influx of people on the inside, that for me is what changes culture. That's what makes us better at reaching out to communities that, that have a real lack of trust and confidence in us. And again, policing cannot operate without the support of the communities. We rely on victims to tell us who done uh, who committed the crime against them, witnesses to come forward and support that going to court. And then as well as that, other businesses and other places giving us their CCTV and other vital evidence. So that that's crucial to kind mm-hmm. of getting that across. But that internal voice for me, you know, we'd always say that community voices sometimes get pushed away by from police by saying, you don't understand our systems and processes. At times we can get um, kind of pushed away saying that we are disgruntled employees and that's our only kind of, that we have a beef with policing in general. But when both the outside and the inside are saying something together, I think that's where, you know, that that's really powerful. And that's where change can actually come forward and happen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, definitely, and it's and it's similar in politics. You know, when you when you want change, it's not just um, the protests and the campaigns, but it's also having those politicians within those um, you know democratic processes also fighting that case. And it's when two, those two things together that that actual real change um, can happen. Um, as a uh, if I may say, ethnic minority police officer. What did you make of the protests that swept across the globe following the, the death of George Floyd? I think it was a deeply emotional time, not just for myself, but also for a lot of our members. You know, I think it was difficult as well because it's a profession that we all join. You know, all I ever wanted to be was a police officer. Joined whenever, at the earliest opportunity, really, the minute I actually applied, took me a year to get in to see somebody that's tasked with serving and protecting communities, you know, sitting literally just, you know, sitting on somebody squeezing their, the life out of them. For me, that was difficult to watch. It was the, the protest afterwards, I suppose, was quite cathartic as well. The fact that it wasn't just black, Asian, other ethnically diverse people coming forward, 
there was you know a, a multitude of, of kind of outrage across society as a whole so for me it was it was emotional it was um upsetting as well but again for for myself and other members sitting as the only person of difference in parade rooms at times it was a really difficult place to be trying to explain to our um, colleagues what the actual protests were about why the death of one black man thousands of miles away had an impact and resonance here in the uk and some of the other issues you know because i think that whole bit about I can't breathe, that's, that's, you know, many of us have felt that whenever comments have been made, whenever we're the only person in the room. So I think there was a lot of a lot of synergy between the experiences, unfortunately, with George Floyd being murdered. And I think a lot of things and the inequalities that, that were being stoked that had been fueled through austerity, through um, COVID as well, which kind of exacerbated, I suppose, a lot of those inequalities that already existed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and it's always that... Um, um that point you raised which is a really important one that why is um you know the murder of george floyd who happened in you know the u.s policing have got their own um issues as as, as much as the the uk policing but um you know some people would argue well it's just not as bad here um and as ignorant as i think that argument can be um why, why do you think that that murder, that event, um, opened up such a wide conversation globally about policing, even in, in even in the UK. Because you saw mass protests in, in in London. Oh no, completely. You know, Belfast as well. The unfortunate bit in Belfast, we were the only police service that actually um, placed the legislation, give out over seventy tickets, and try to take the organisers to to court um, under the Serious Organised Crime Act. So. It was across the UK. It was a global movement. And I think it's just because that there had been that shift, I think. A um, number of things that wouldn't have been discussed in the past had been pulled out in the open. And I think there was, you know, the, the rise of the far right had definitely started to come there. And that um, them and us kind of politics and societal changes and stuff. I think that had really led to, to these inequalities being seen a lot more, being felt a lot more. And I think, you know, seeing somebody actually die whilst you were being locked up. Uh, or lockdown, sorry, during COVID. I think that's what really probably allowed people to come together as, as much as they did. But um, that that discrimination, that whole bit about you know somebody in uniform that almost represented the system, mm-hmm. that just felt that it was beyond reproach. That George Floyd did not matter. That it didn't matter what happened, even while they were being videoed, that they would still not be held to account. And I think that that's what really, I suppose, pushed on that it was so in your face, and there were so many people able to see it with social media as well do you think that that also opened up another conversation in the sense that um you know for um a white person who has the privilege to kind of not see um some would say you know that the the ugliest faces of society um when it comes to to racism xenophobia um, sexism or whatever um you know but for a lot of minorities this has been real life for for a long time and minority ethnic groups have been saying these issues exist for for years before george floyd um and the fact that we as a society need video evidence of a man dying for that portion of society to be believed and taken seriously um do you feel like that had a profound impact because it's like well it's great that you're listening now and we're having this conversation now but i'll is, is our word really meaning that little that you needed the evidence and and the kind of shocking video footage to 
to believe it. I think definitely, but you know, I think a lot of the time people believe that racism is that overt in your face mm-hmm. name column. And for me, whilst I've had that, the first time I, I had racism or experienced racism and realized I was different, I was only six years old, you know, and that continued on before that. And again, we were the only family of difference from an ethnic um, minority background in the town I grew up in. There's maybe two others, but there was very little kind of people that looked like me. So I always felt different. But as you said, that compound and impact, that um, impact of not just the stuff in your face, but the structural inequalities, mm-hmm. you know, the whole bits around the fact that you're less likely to get jobs with different names and the more subtle systemic stuff, which comes forward. I think that's the bit that needs to be pulled out more in the open because the overt racism, you know, is a separation between what racial bias is, which is the cognitive process all of us have, and racism, which is the action of that bias. As I said, I can be racist as well. So I can if I don't check it in, in or I don't make sure that I put checks in place. Other people are as well. You know, I, I'm dual heritage. Dad's Malaysian, mum's white Northern Irish. And some of the things she even now still comes out with, which she doesn't understand or, or, or accepts are racist. And, you know, deep down, obviously, she married dad. Thinks she loves him, loves us for sure. But um, see, what do you call it? You know, it, it's even with all of that, she can still have deeply ingrained beliefs which she's not even aware or racist. And I think that's the key bit we need to pull out, that it, it isn't just in-your-face racism. If, if I'm honest, our members actually find that a lot easier to deal with because at least you know where you stand. It's whenever people smile at your face and are doing things behind the scene to kind of make sure that that, that equality isn't done. You know, my own father, whenever he went for his sergeants in the 60s and 70s, had a letter from somebody saying that, that there's no N-words being a sergeant in, in my platoon and stuff like that. And the CEO wasn't allowing it. Thankfully, it changed. But that happened in the 60s, but it's still happening today. It's not just as overt. And policing in the last 20 years, if I'm honest, has got better with their PR. And I think racism has really went underground and it's moved away from canteens and in your face on the WhatsApp groups, mm-hmm. which again shows that all we've really done in society in the last few years is push racism underground but it's, it hasn't been eradicated because we haven't looked at the systemic issues around it. Mm-hmm. The systemic issues, and of course, um, as, as you currently mentioned, the unconscious bias. Um, because I think, and, and, and you're correct in saying, you know, when you think of racism, you think of the kind of, um, uh, for lack of a better word of saying it, like the traditional forms of racism, the name calling, if you're in the States, the cross burning, the weird um, white hats and all that nonsense. Um, but of course, that's, that's just one element it's a very visual element um but it's only one element um and perhaps what we're seeing more today is that unconscious bias that very subtle versions or or, or being pushed underground into closed social media networks as you say you know whatsapp telegram take your pick you know there's there's so many of them now um that actually as you say you know we we're we're making it seem less acceptable to say out in public but it almost seems like we haven't um, pushed that educational element. So like we're, we're making it, as a society, we're not accepting it anymore, arguably. Um, but that doesn't change people's minds. No, completely. And that, that that's kind of the, the key bit that we really need to do. I think there, there's a big debate about unconscious bias and, and unconscious bias training in general. And I think standalone training products, which which kind of sit there, which have no relevance to your operational role, to your daily life in general, I think that's never going to change anything. You know, it needs to be a longer, continuous process. 
So having unconscious bias awareness training as part of, from a policing perspective, everything in our probationary training, which helps people get help understand, um, you know, the difference in society as well. So rather than this one generic, this is how you take a statement off somebody. This is how you interview somebody. This is how you deal with domestics. You need to also understand what the cultural differences are as well. And I think that's the bit that then breaks down the bias because of our lack of representation as well. A lot of our officers come from areas that do not have that much diversity in them. So the first time that London in particular, a Metropolitan Police officer steps into somewhere like Lewisham and um, some other areas that, that trust and confidence is quite low. The first time they have an interaction, all of the information they've got about the black community is from media, films, social media. So it's all negative portrayals of young black men in particular. Whenever they come in then and they start engaging with these communities, they don't realize that it's their uniform represents something to those communities as well. And it's not them that are being looked at, but they're also, you know, that bias works sometimes two ways. And I think this kind of education and informal engagement, that for me is what creates this pathway for police officers to see the best in the community, for the community to see beyond the uniform at the individuals underneath. And we might actually start kind of winning that hearts and minds battle because it's, it's not an academic or intellectual kind of battle that we need to be hitting it's it's hearts and minds and these are deeply emotional issues to a lot of people no definitely definitely um and and, and i'd love to explore that a little bit more but you mentioned um before if i may um that you you had your kind of first um racist experience at the, at the age of six um but the first time you felt you felt different as, as you say um would you would you mind going into that a little bit yeah no problem i went to the circus with my cousin who's white Northern Irish as well, sitting in there, um, clowns had come out that asked for three of us to come up as volunteers. That time I was quite young and naive, didn't realise I was different, so kind of put my hand up, stepped into that ring full of confidence, and then they went along each each young person. I was at the last in the line, but they asked each young person their name, shouted out their name, the big top erupted in applause, um, then it got to me, and they leaned down and asked me what my name was. I said it was Andy. Um, the lead stood up first, waited for a second or two, and then shouted out, sausage, this is sausage. And I'm like, I didn't say sausage. You know, why are you saying sausage? And then it took me a while to kind of catch on. Well, one way everybody was laughing because I didn't say sausage and my name isn't sausage. But then I started to realize that sausages are brown and so am I. And that's, that's completely different. But for me, it was that feeling of the big top closing in around me, me suddenly feeling that I'm, completely different to everybody else I was looking out in the crowd and again for me the biggest thing that I seen was these were parents that had taken their children there and not one person stepped forward to look after that six-year-old and for me that had a profound impact you know I had kind of from then on I learned to keep my head down didn't put my head above the power pit still had up until I become president I actually had a deep fear of kind of public speaking or being in the limelight at all because it kind of brought me back to to those kind of early experiences of being different and for me, I just kind of melted into the background, and, and that was my way of coping with it. No, that's that's incredible, and obviously, so public um, in that point. But um, um, yeah, that's 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 amazing. Thank you. And I mean, you've you've definitely you've definitely moved on from there as the uh, as the president of the association now. So uh, um, massive congratulations there. Um, but you were talking about um, the uh, biases. Um, within within offices and i think you you've raised a really interesting point there because and i think the uniform sometimes 
um, although necessary um, for for a variety of reasons, um, does arguably dehumanize officers sometimes. And, you know, you see the police forces as kind of like one thing, this kind of like inhumane institution that kind of like upholds the law. And whenever you're dealing with a police officer, it's not normally for good reasons. Um, which is unfortunate because that's kind of the, 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 the you know, you, you end up building a, a certain view of officers because of that. Um, but like you say, they're human beings. Um, so, and, and, you know, human beings that read the news, watch TV, go online, go on closed social media groups, open social media groups, you know, they engage with all of that kind of content that, uh, and all the disinformation that exists on these networks. And if we, you know, if we're dealing with a, with a, a far right problem, with dealing with a white nationalism problem, there is no surprise that, you know, out of the 100,000 plus police officers there are in England and Wales, it doesn't take a genius to assume that actually some of these might be becoming influenced by this disinformation, as our politicians, as our teachers, as our educators, as our, you know, healthcare professionals, as our ordinary people. Um, so how do you feel like this, this, um, these, these biases specifically around race are affecting policing? Um, at the moment and, and in the past? I, I think a lot of it's around your threat assessment and how you engage with communities. So during COVID, we've seen a higher issuing of tickets um, for COVID legislation against Black, Asian and other ethnically diverse communities. I think one of the key things around that is the fact that I don't think officers always understand that where trust and confidence is low in some communities, you're less likely to gain compliance. So again, it, it becomes an almost... I am hostile kind of encounter and if officers don't have the information to understand why that is that it's not them and their particular actions right now for some um, ethnic minority communities it's like the issues that I had whenever I was six years old that um, the, the incident that they are now kind of doing and dealing with somebody slightly differently that almost brings back a lot of the discrimination that you've had during your life that your family have had that intergenerational trauma as well so Whenever you're trying to engage, encourage and explain to people about the COVID legislation, you're less likely for them to kind of listen to you or work with you because, as you said, what that uniform represents, what they represent to some communities. So you were more likely to have to go to enforcement action and, and issuing tickets. Think as well with Taser and use of force then, that also plays out because Taser is now being used more as a compliance weapon than it was intended to be as a less lethal weapon because it was initially brought in for firearms teams brought in for those people that were so dangerous carrying weapons that could potentially take somebody's life. Now it's kind of the go-to weapon for people to kind of use. And when they take the taser out, pointed at somebody, they don't understand that again, when relationships are poor, they're less likely to comply with what you're saying. They're more likely to kind of, to, to not do what you're telling them, which then can lead to an escalation in violence. And if the officers don't have that information, don't understand the gestures that different communities use and stuff, I think that's where the bias plays out and they also then see because of the social media stuff you have black males as bigger strong stronger more violent for asian um, males at times as well then because of the information around either terrorism or around um grooming gangs then they're more likely to see them in that kind of light rather than from a safeguarding or victim led approach that we're more likely to see so i think that's where the bias leads it out um you know there's been a, far, a rise in the far right around terrorism both in the US and the UK. And I think that's one of the things that, that kind of focusing in on Islamic extremism, it's it's almost lazy policing at times because mm -hmm. whilst that issue's there, a lot of it is mental health linked. It's 
it's you know these lone wolf attacks rather than an organized kind of piece but as well as that in northern ireland we separate the community as well so we do not say that the entire community are linked to terrorism even though we had you know a lot of terrorism in the past we call our protestant communities protestant unionist loyalist which goes through your religion your um, affiliation around um, being part of the united kingdom and then your extremist side around loyalists and the same for the catholic community you have catholic nationalist republican and again around the same issues so it's trying to separate that extreme element in communities from the majority of communities and i think that's something we haven't really done that well in england and wales what we've actually done is almost tarnish entire communities based on the actions of a few Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, I mean, just on your initial point, is that almost self-professing prophecy of, um, you know, if, if you're a police officer and you go into a community because, you know, you've read, you've watched things and, and you know, your your bias is that they're going to be violent. You're naturally going to go in harsher because you you care for your life. Right. Even though you're basing that on completely false information and because you're going in harsher, that other side of the community that you're going into assumes you're going to use police brutality um, and because you're going in harsher you're you're asserting that assumption you're, you're you're approving that assumption so therefore they become more hostile and that asserts the assumption on the police officer side that yeah this community is hostile so it's almost like this consistent perpetual circle of well both sides are completely misunderstanding the other side they're both reacting in a certain way because of assumptions and bias um, and those assumptions are just getting almost confirmed because of misinformation on, on both sides. Um, so, I mean, how could that circle be be broken? Because I'm guessing it has an incred- incredibly negative impact um, for police community relations and specifically in those areas. Um, and arguably that's been broken for quite some time. Um, do you see that changing? Do you see that circle breaking at any point? I, I think the circle's been going on for quite a while. And I think, you know, history is cyclical as well. You know, you, you have different rises. You, you know, you Scarman report 20 years later, McPherson report 20 years later, the Black Lives Matter movement. So it's almost like history has these peaks and troughs around the issues of discrimination and racism in particular. You know, you look at the difference between the violence against women and girls agenda um, after the, the, the despicable murder of Sir Everard, you know, within policing. The resourcing that that got, the the issues that got around that, compared to the race action plan and some of the work that we were trying to do for that, you know, those senior leaders in that majority community, they all have daughters, partners, mothers, people that are close to them that they want Mm -hmm. to protect. I think around this issue of racism, it's seen more through a hostile lens. So there's not that same emotional attachment or personal attachment. There's no relatives or nobody that they want to protect that are suffering racism. And I think that's what creates them and us and mm-hmm. i think this is a bit where you know that this is it'll continue going in this cycle until policing in particular because we're the paid kind of responsible members of society it's our duty to increase our uh, relationship with communities that don't trust us so i think it's us that has to take that step back in northern ireland what we did was embed human rights into absolutely everything we did so again i was chatting about unconscious bias being a standalone product Human rights is embedded in our initial training, our personal safety training, leadership training to the point where I could almost name every single article which we have. And again, whenever you're using force or police powers, what you have to look at is not only is it lawful, is it proportionate, is it necessary and does it stand up to scrutiny afterwards? If you come at it from that end, and again, I'm not saying that Northern Ireland do everything right because I've called the PSNI out quite a few times on a number of issues. 
But whenever it's deeply embedded, you have to think about things um, a lot more. I think those community relations in Northern Ireland, you're going to get more public disorder, a rise in terrorism and attacks on officers if we do not kind of be more sympathetic and, and think about the community impact of our actions. I think that needs to be moved across into London in particular, but then kind of rippled out from London because I think London and the Metropolitan Police has a profound impact on the reputation of policing across the UK. So I think it needs to start there, but it needs to move across the other um, police forces as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, definitely. I mean, the Metropolitan Police are arguably probably the most the most famous police force just in the sense of it being the capital, I think. Um, it's interesting you, you mentioned that you, you've embedded human rights. Um, well, when you say human rights, do you mean the, the European Convention of Human Rights? Yeah. That was brought yeah. in with the human rights. Perfect. Yeah, completely. And, and did you see um, a, a direct positive impact when when that was happened when when that happened um or when you started to to embed that and then what what kind of positive impact no definitely i mean like for me you know i think the policing did it quite well anyway but this this put an an onus on us to actually consider it so all of our paperwork had it you know from an officer viewpoint you know we're fully armed police service and we shoot a lot less people than armed response units and on kind of mainland gb so we do. So it's very rare that police officers in Northern Ireland would actually use their guns, and I think that's because the mentality they have around them is it's a personal protection weapon. It was in there because of the terrorist threat, but you have to have absolute an absolute necessity to use it. So it's even above the use of force. So it's something you wouldn't really go to. That human rights bit then also kind of graduated our response around public order, around firearms, and and a number of different things which were. We're almost global leaders on because of that embedding of human rights. Across UK policing, human rights is is included in public order and firearms, but it needs to be widened because of you know some things like stop and search, like um, search warrants at homes and stuff as well. You also need to apply that, even though you've got a lawful power. Is it proportionate to do this now? Is it necessary? And the manner in which we do it as well, because again, that bias, if you think certain communities are more violent or against you, you may go in with a higher level of force than what you would for other communities. So you made the point about, you know, at uniform seeing, being seen as oppressors in some communities. You know, some of our white majority communities only see them as protectors because they're at furs, they're in their community, they know these people out of uniform. And I think that's the bit that, that we kind of need to push a lot more. Mm-hmm. Having a more representative workforce in the long term will help create that kind of bridge, that gap between police and communities. And I think it's really important that we do that and put a lot of our efforts in that kind of space. So do you think that the way to um, possibly rid um, the police as a whole of, of these kind of biases that we're, that we're seeing entrenched almost um, is a more diverse workforce? I think it's... it's and diverse leadership, bigger, obviously. It's one part of a bigger puzzle because whilst you have a certain culture, some of our senior officers from ethnic minority backgrounds actually conform a lot more than anybody else. As soon as you reach chief inspector, superintendent in the police service, you rely on others to give you the right portfolios, the right projects to put you forward for promotion. So for you to stand out and say what's happening is wrong, you know, you look at Neil Basu, the assistant commissioner for the Met. During Black Lives Matter, he spoke out. He pushed for positive discrimination in the Met and he's paying the consequences now where he went for the National Crime Agency job and that, um, that, um, that actual application process was pulled completely so again if you speak out and you're at a more senior level it's definitely harder to progress so what we want to do is make sure that it's a two-pronged kind of attack on this get the right people into policing 
make it more diverse and having four or five people from ethnic minority backgrounds in a parade room of 15 people will definitely help people speak out a lot more, help other people challenge kind of inappropriate behaviour at the earliest opportunity. But again, we also need to get the culture right. So get the misconduct and grievances right. At the minute, I think it's it's like one in 25 grievances around race discrimination in the police service is actually found in the grievance favour. So that's saying 96% are made up or aren't enough evidence to be found, which is a staggering statistic because most people of our, most of our members that bring forward discrimination just want one acknowledgement that they've been wronged and steps to be put in place so it doesn't happen to somebody else. So we need to get that culture right, get the progression right, um, as well as, as bringing more people in as well. So do you think this is an argument of um, pushing for more um, equity when it comes to um, when, when it comes to, to uh, discussions around around racial equality in the sense that um, it's not good enough to just employ a more diverse workforce because if that diverse workforce is at the bottom of the of the hierarchy, um, should I say, but the power structures don't allow these people to progress unless you conform to a certain narrative, nothing really is going to change. Yeah, the, the look of the police force will change um and that may have some you know very very um what's the word very um kind of basic elements of of you know improvement i guess um but at the same time you're not really changing anything because that that culture that that institutionalized um issues that that are pervasive are, are still there no definitely and as i said that, that's what we're seeing with a lot of people that do progress there are people that, that do kind of toe the corporate line that kind of say that everything's great in police and don't really give that honest approach. And I think it's, you know, it, it's it's short-sighted at times as well because even those police leaders, if they do not get the challenging voices, the, those mm-hmm. people most impacted by the issues, if they do not have those voices at the table, they do not have the information to make better decisions, to change things for the better. So I think that's why we sometimes, whenever we do in, independent advisory groups, sometimes... We can choose people that live in middle class areas and suburbs that don't always represent the communities or the issues that we're actually engaging them on. But I think that there is a big issue about people coming into the organisation. And with the Police Uplift programme, which we've had for the last two years or another year to go, we've seen an increase from about 6.5% to about 8.5% for all different ethnic groups coming into policing. But we've also seen a higher um, attrition rate. So they're starting to leave as well. And I think sometimes they're being promised this this kind of diverse culture, which which embraces all difference from national mm. kind of advertisements. But whenever they come in, that experience that they have at a local level is completely different, and they're having to leave. And again, we're we're, we're seeing a lot more people from Black and Asian backgrounds, in particular, leaving policing. Was that before or after the um, Black Lives Matter movements? would you say that was in around the same time so again the police uplift program started about the same time as the black lives matter protest but i think that there's definitely a correlation between the black lives matter movement with that kind of people being wanting to chat about a lot more because i think in policing that it's kind of it it is quite a binary debate you know black lives matter and kicking the knee is a political statement it's against policing in general and they're having a go at policing so policing rather than listen and learn sometimes we do get quite defensive and dismissive around a lot of the issues so i do so i think a lot of black officers in particular that are coming in they're trying to educate their officers they're trying to help make policing better 
but it's a big struggle whenever there's only a couple of people there. Mm-hmm. So I think that's definitely had a big impact because, as I said, that emotional kind of that emotional attachment to George Floyd's murder that a lot of communities had whenever you come into policing and, and your kind of perspective is almost being um, not accepted or, or there's arguments being put forward against it, that it can be quite draining emotionally. No, no, I, of course. And it's, and it's arguably draining on, um, or, 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 you know, it's triggering on that other side as well. And it's, and it's that kind of narrative of um, wider, uh, society in a lot of ways and how we've we've phrased things for so long i mean you mentioned of course you know they um i mean you know there's a, a load of reports saying that white nationalism and, and white supremacy is, is one of the bigger growing threats in the uk for example but as you say you know that, there's still that focus on um on an islamic extremism um despite this this being a much uh faster growing issue um and part of the the reason potentially why that's um not being seen as as uh as as big of an issue as you say was was how how it's often being reported or how it's often being portrayed as that kind of lone gunman you know once that person's behind bars or dead the threat goes away and of course you speak to any academic that's done any amount of research in this space will tell you that these people do not work alone they are indoctrinated by a community online they're often in that community and yes there is you know, that one person often having mental issues, but let's be honest, anybody that commits terrorist attacks or any of those kind of atrocities most likely have mental issues. Um, then Gotrino triggers themselves to to do that attack, but it's not isolated. These things are not lone gunmen. I think that's been proven time and time again that that's just not the case. Um, but there is still that narrative online and in media that, that portrays them as such. Um, and that kind of twists the problem which you then almost have the contrary of when when you see things like like George Floyd and and the BLM movement which is kind of almost blowing apart that kind of narrative that we as a society have kind of lived with for so long um that becomes quite quite difficult to shift especially if you are as i say privileged enough to never have experienced racism never have experienced sexism so you've never seen these things that people are talking about so it makes it really hard to to accept no, definitely. And again, you said the, the bit around the, the far right and, and those terror, those attacks, which are terrorism as well, mm-hmm. you know, and they're not always reported as that. Whenever it's a black or Asian person, immediately it's a terrorist or everybody says it's a terrorist attack straight away. Whenever you see, you know, attacks like the the um, Joe Cox murder and things like that, that's exactly the same terrorist attack. There's a, a, a there's an ideology behind that. So there is. And you look at these, you know, the, this, this kind of the the active shooters which you have in america as well you know the one that you had you know kylie rittenhouse, rittenhouse mm-hmm. that, that went out and shot protesters the other one that we had last week as well where police are able to go and apprehend these people without killing them and then the likes of george floyd who allegedly tendered you know fraudulent money he ends up losing his life because of it so again that feeds into the narrative that, that policing sees black people as offenders as people that are dangerous and asian as well but white people you know, some aren't always like that, or there's other issues that are at play. And there's, it's almost this, well, they, they can relate to those people a lot more, whereas they can't relate to ourselves. And I think that's the key bit where, we, you know, whenever we have a, you know, guard counter terrorism teams are largely white, you know, British males and females that don't understand the, the kind of how things are coming forward. You know, there's documentaries on, you know, Osama bin Laden and how he spoke in a cave and what that actually meant as um, to the Muslim community and how that was being perceived, whereas the, the FBI agents seen it as 
some Egypt in, in a cave kind of around them, whereas they didn't see the religious symbol, symbology around it, so they didn't. So it's these bits around the fact that we need to understand what drives people towards that. I think for, for some of the terrorism stuff, whenever you do look at Islamic extremism and things like that, I think there's this part where we're second, third generation um, communities as well, and we see ourselves largely as British. But whenever people say that we're not British enough or they can take our passports away or, you know, as long as you play the, the game and do well, like the England footballers, as long as you play well, do, do well, serve your country well, the minute you make a mistake, the minute something goes wrong, it's almost this bit, you're not one of us really. Mm. You know, and it goes back to those microaggressions you get about like, where are you, where are you from? Where are you really from? I'm like, well, I'm really from Northern Ireland. I'm born there. I don't know anywhere else. I'm going to Malaysia with that a few times, but I don't know an awful lot about that community, but yet people will still want to send me home. People still say that I'm not part of this community, that I'm not somebody that belongs here. So I'm not a lot of the time. So I think whenever you're told that constantly, you know, so the link between racism and discrimination and why some people are able to be influenced by online ideology, where they suddenly go, you're not one of them. You're not um, never going to be accepted by these people. They then show pictures of drone attacks on children and things like that to try and feed into what you're actually feeling at times. I think that's why people move across. And we need to get a lot more intelligent about how we tackle extremism. And I think the whole bit about community cohesion, I think, is is the whole way that we get this right. Because, you know, Britain, the United Kingdom has been diverse for many, many centuries. The fact that the empire stretched so far, I think it's quite naive to think that black Asian and other ethnic diverse people weren't here. You know, we're a collection of, of different um, diverse backgrounds. And I think that's what makes us stronger. That's what makes us kind of the, the, the world leaders that we are at times. And that should be embraced a lot more. Mm hmm. No, definitely, definitely. Um, and one of the aspects that um, you know compounds this problem, um, as you say, you know that that you know the moment you make a mistake, you know you're you're crucified, um, like we saw with the the, the England team and, and 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 you know missing the penalty and suddenly the the racist tweets were flying and all, all that kind of nonsense. Um, but of course, then it's compounded in policing because. Um, you know the fact that black people are was it um, nine and a half times more likely to be stopped and such than 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 a white person, for example. I mean, what 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 can we make of that disproportionality? Um, still in the modern day, a lot of it is. I mean, like, back in the eighties, it was around burglary and robbery, and that's what they were using sus laws for. And I think we we need to understand our history to get things right in mm -hmm. the present. You know, and those sus laws were used predominantly for the black community. It was a way of keeping them down. Now, what we're- Sorry, when you say sus laws, could you could you expand on those? Yeah, sus laws, it's section four of the Vagrancy Act that was abolished. Um, it was part of the, what caused the Brixton riots. So it was, um, but sus laws were basically powers which police were given where anybody um, in an area that, that were suspected by the police of committing a crime or about to commit a crime could be arrested. So that was used predominantly against the black community. That's what brought about um, the introduction of the Police and Criminal Evidence Order in 1984, subsequent to the Scarman review. So we had a, a big push where they were saying they were trying to combat robbery and burglary back then. Now they're saying it's about knife crime. And there is obviously a deep impact around knife crime, around gang violence in black communities. But it's, it's a minority. And again, we haven't looked at the re repeat offender side. We haven't looked at the fact that whilst we're saying we're trying to protect communities, by um, taking weapons off the street, 
65 to 70 percent of searches are actually done under the drug misuse of drugs act a lot of them are actually done for cannabis and again single possession use so again the evidence base for us actually using it isn't there sometimes we find um, weapons but if we done random stops in the street in general we could quite likely find um, weapons on people again if our if our drug policy is around simple possession of cannabis then we should also then be targeting more affluent areas where we know the class A drugs like ecstasy, like cocaine are being used. And again, if we were allowed to, to have films like The Wolf of Wall Street and the portrayal of bankers using um, cocaine to keep themselves going, if we were allowed to, to allow that to influence our behaviour, we would be up in the city of London stopping people in suits consistently. The reason we don't is because those members of that community would be a lot more connected. There would be a lot of people speaking out for those Whereas small council estates, communities that are impoverished, that have a lot of social disadvantage, they do not have the same amount of people that are there to speak for them. So it's almost like we take the low hanging fruit. It's those that we can get away with. And this is the bit where police accountability is really important, because if we don't get that right, then stop and search will continue to be kind of used in a, in a disproportionate way. And it's not just a disproportionate way, as we spoke earlier you know, it's how the style and tone of those stops are conducted as well. So pushing somebody up against shutters, handcuffing them straight away, generally black, um, young black males as well, shows that there's a mindset in policing that they are dangerous and that they need to be controlled quite easily or quite early before they actually make that general risk assessment based on the here and now rather than their kind of bias that they've, they've had or those cultural bits where we just, in this area, because it's a lot of black people about we just handcuff people straight away where we might not do it in other areas. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of stuff around stop and search which needs to be unpacked, but it, it's linked to kind of all of our coercive powers as police officers. So it is because they are generally all disproportionately used against black communities and, and in particular other ethnic groups as well, but particularly the black community. Mm -hmm. No, and, and it's a really interesting point you make about um you know, those affluent areas and, and, and the class A drugs um, point, because if we were to to look at look at those, those two groups and, you know, if we are going to have the argument that, you know, drugs damages communities and, and you know, the, the, the people that use them or, or also them could potentially um, have detrimental impacts on society, arguably, um, you know, someone that is managing a multi-million, arguably billion dollar fund for example would have um would you know would cause more damage than than a um than a than a kid in east london in a, in a, in a council estate for example but but as you say um the police are more focused on that on that kid than they are on on on, on those other on those other people and i think also when you look at the wolf of wall street in comparison to things like say i don't know um you know, I don't know, um, Top Boy or whatever else. You know, there's there's almost like a a dramatization of of these lives, one in a positive and one in a very gritty, dark way. Um, in the sense that, like you, you know, The Wolf of Wall Street, it was it was an insane film, but never did you, you know, you almost have or there's almost like a glamorization of what that that man did um, to a certain extent. And then you look at things like Todd Bulloy Blue Story, for example, and there's that kind of gritty reality of, of those lives. So even in the way we portray 
um, the use of those drugs and, and, and those kind of lifestyles, it, it's already completely different. No, definitely. As you said, there's definitely, there was a romantic notion about that kind of drug taking, and it, almost a normalization. Like it's like, well, we mm -hmm. all know bankers do that, or we all know somebody in that position would be doing that. So it's just something. We all we know accept. it, and it's fine and fun. Yeah, and it's accepted, you mm -hmm. know, and I think that's, that's a key bit where, where we have to really push on because, as you said, that, you know, county lines is something that always comes up, and I think it is, it's a real threat. It's something that needs to be dealt with, but it isn't a black only issue. And that's the key bit that we need to understand because we're relying with, with the way we're using police powers, we're, we're you know, Section 60 in particular, which allows us to search anybody in a certain location with an inspector's authority at the minute. Um, it means that officers just zone into an area, stop people in the street, don't have to actually have any reasonable suspicion. But what that does is it targets, like I said earlier, entire communities, makes them, um, makes the entire community feel like they're the problem. And it allows organized crime groups like County Lines and others to actually create a vacuum where the police aren't accepted in the community because the police have fed into the kind of narrative that you're there to, to oppress the community, you're not there to protect them um, because they don't see the police as a viable kind of, of way of, of, say, of protecting themselves, protecting their community. The information just isn't going to get to the police. And within that vacuum, then these organized crime groups flourish. They coerce, they exploit these young people. And we really need to get to the root causes of that crime as well and kind of help capacity build those communities, help look at the, the links to crime and deprivation, lack of opportunity, poverty, inequality, all of those things that need to be looked at. And, and you know, policing did it really well in Glasgow. But again, I think it's telling that it was done really well by a white majority police force, by a white majority government on a white majority community that were involved in, in a lot of knife crime in Glasgow. You know, and when that was dealt with, when that was, was kind of explained and, and the root causes done through the violence reduction units there, that crime's almost been eradicated. But again, whenever we put that mentality into London and others, we have a white majority government, um, a white majority um, police force trying to work with the black community. Um, and all they're seeing is, is the bias that they're coming forward. So they're not seeing them through the lens of safeguarding. They're not seeing that through the lens of, of protection but they're looking at it just through an enforcement lens alone. And again, in Northern Ireland, we had twice as many police officers during the Troubles, backed up by 8,000 military personnel. Mm -hmm. We locked, locked down every single town and village in Northern Ireland. We had static checkpoints. We had um, checkpoints that were just random setups, not BCBs, I called them. You know, I went to school and I had to go through one or two army checkpoints to get to school. And yet with all of that kind of increased presence, um, we still had bombs and bullets getting through. People were still murdered through terrorism. And it wasn't until we sat down, got to the root causes and worked around these hearts and minds and worked with different groups to make things better. That's what made fundamental changes in Northern Ireland. The, the, the fact that, you know, there's no military backing us up now. We have 7,000 officers, not 13,500. So enforcement alone can contain a problem. And no doubt Northern Ireland would save many, many lives but it also kept this cycle of violence. So the more police and army we put in the streets, the more attacks there were, the more attacks there were, the more police and army were on the streets. So this cycle of violence needs to be broken mm -hmm. and we need to get to the root causes. And that's that for me, how you kind of make things kind of more fair, equitable and, and safer for everybody. The days of mass lynchings may be behind us. However, the decision to ignore or deny the very real difference in treatment based on skin colour is still racism. 
This is an issue that spans beyond the sphere of one profession. And we as a collective society need to acknowledge that fact. Having a vast universe of information available to us through a screen the size of our palm means it is much easier to fall into the stereotypes and tune out the voices of those who we don't really want to listen to. We're all responsible for our own biases, implicit or not. The stereotypes and racist attitudes that brought about the Jim Crow laws are the same biases held by Derek Chauvin when he pinned his knee against George Floyd's neck for 8 minutes and 46 seconds. Or that allowed four white police officers to strip search a 15 year old girl at her school in East London. This is why media literacy is so important. It not only helps us identify misinformation around skin colour and race, but it helps us challenge, discard and dismantle the racist tropes and labels that still persist within our society. The time is up. We must acknowledge the harm that misinformation and our unconscious bias causes and strive to counteract them for the public good or they will continue to suffocate the marginalised. Thank you for listening to Season 2 of Media Minded, the show guiding you through the age of disinformation. This podcast is produced by Shoutout UK and edited by Sabina McKenzie-Brown. Make sure to follow Shoutout UK on Twitter and Instagram to get updates on all of our upcoming episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to the Media Minded podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast fix. This episode is made possible by the generous support and sponsorship of the US Embassy in London. Thanks for listening, and remember, stay informed. <laughs>